Good morning. My name is Paul, and this is Josh, and we, along with the rest of us, would like to welcome you to the 2010 Senegal SST Convocation. The 23 of us, along with our leaders, Ron and Sally Jo Milne, spent the summer in Senegal, which is located in Western Africa, and I don't know if we've got the map or the PowerPoint up. Yes, um, and you can see it's on the West Coast, and we spent our uh, study term in the city of TS, which is located close to the capital of Dakar on the westernmost um, point. And for service, we spread out to um, all these other cities that you, well, not quite all of them, but some of them. <clears throat> and you may have noticed that as you entered in this morning, uh, we greeted you or attempted to greet all of you um, because greetings are an essential part of Senegalese culture. Everyone is greeted as they enter a room, a taxi cab, um, when you wake up in the morning or when you return home from work. It is considered extremely rude to not greet someone as you are essentially acknowledging that they are not important. Giving a greeting means that the person is important to, as well, not just the business that you have with them. And there are many different greetings in Senegal because there are many different languages. The most common one is the Wolof greeting, which is a mix of Arabic and Wolof, and it goes something like this. Assalamu alaikum, malikum salam, nangadef, magni fedek, anawakirga, nungafa, and it translates into peace be with you, and with you peace. How are you? I'm only here, meaning in the moment. How is your family? They are fine. And it doesn't all, the greetings don't always end at that. On service, I once witnessed a two-minute conversation between two men, which was just, how are you? I'm fine. You? Good, good. You? How are you? And it went back and forth for a long time. <laughs> As each person comes to the podium today to speak, they will greet you in the language that they used. And now Josh will explain the Atayo ceremony. Wale Jam, which is Pulefute for... Um, essentially, peace be with you, or how is the morning? Um, as you can see here, Aaron and I are going to be um, making ataya, which is um, a green tea. There's a whole big tea ceremony that goes with making ataya. Um, this would happen anywhere from once a month to three times a day, depending on the household. Um, and this is, I mean, what Aaron's doing now is the sort of the party piece of making a tie, is the mixing of the tea and the sugar. Um, basically, it's done like that. And one of the really cool things um, about Senegalese is that they're really good at it. So it's just sometimes just a blast to sit and watch them pour, and, and they just keep getting higher and higher and higher, and it's a lot of fun. So we're going to be making a tie throughout the convocation. Um, because that's a pretty appropriate time length for making a tie. Um, yeah, and so I hope you enjoy what we have to tell you. We're going to do our best to explain what we did for three months. Jambalo, <laughs> Numbata. I'm Andrea Detweiler. And if you spoke Pular, you would know that I just asked you how you are, and you would respond to Gemtom, which means I'm fine. Pular is the language that my host family on service spoke. Um, but actually, the family I'm going to talk to you about this morning is from the first six weeks um, that I spent in Senegal on the study portion of SST. And this was in the city of 
GS, actually. <laughs> it's not up there anymore. Um, I should start out by saying that Senegal is 95% Muslim, and their form of Islam is really unique and interesting, and Jeff is going to talk more about it later. Um, also, 1% of Senegalese practice traditional animist beliefs, and that leaves 4% who are Christian, and most of the Christians are Catholic. Um, so Protestant Christians are actually very few and far between in Senegal, but it just so happened that many of us had Protestant families, especially, on, especially in Chies, on study. Uh, in Chies, there were two Methodist churches in particular that some of our host families attended. And my host dad happened to be the pastor at one of these churches, and my host mom also worked primarily at the church. So my family was really involved in that ministry, and they were incredibly devout. <laughs> and when I say incredibly devout, I mean that they were more evangelical than probably any Christian that I've met here in the US. They also have prayers for an hour every weekday morning at 6 a.m., and I was part of all of this, and they have prayers for about 15 minutes every evening before bed, but that's just what they do at home. They also did services at the church at least three times a week, lasting you know, more than three hours, that involved prayers, devotionals, Bible studies. They just basically lived their lives at the church. And of course, there were Sunday morning services when most all the church members came, which was only about 30. Naturally, when I came into this family, they were very interested in my spirituality. The, first, the very first breakfast I ate with them, they grilled me about how often I went to church and concluded that I am not nearly Christian enough. And this led to many, many interesting discussions about God throughout my stay in their home. And they showed me a kind of tolerance that I learned was common in Senegal, and let me define this kind of tolerance for you. They had absolutely no tolerance for my beliefs because they had such strong convictions themselves, but they were also completely accepting of me as a person and even part of their family. And the same is true of most Senegalese. I met so many people who would tell us with pride all about their religion, whatever it was, but they also completely accepted the different beliefs of their fellow Senegalese and others around the world. Um, yeah, people I met just constantly demonstrated to me what a peaceful and hospitable country Senegal is. Assalamu alaikum, Nangadef, Anawakar. Um, alaikum salam. <laughs> my, name <is> Jeff, <laughs> my name is Jeff Stoge. And I'm Leah Lehman. <laughs> We're talking some about Islam in Senegal. As mentioned, Islam is the vast majority of the population in Senegal but it's characterized much more by Sufi brotherhoods, particularly the Murids in Senegal. I think the Islam that many of us are more familiar with would be Saudi Arabia, Iraq, or Iran that maybe emphasize more Arabic, more traditional Islam, whereas Islam in Senegal is more characterized by a very expressive or a very spiritual character. Um, the Murids are by far the, like, the largest population and the wealthiest uh, ethnic group or religious sect in Senegal that have founded the city of Touba in about center east of Senegal. We were lucky enough to travel there over a weekend visit. It's an absolutely incredible city. They have a grand mosque there that I don't think we had figures on its cost, but absolutely phenomenal dedication and devotion to the expression of faith, the expression of spirituality through 
the glory to God, a glory to Allah. Um, we were, I think, though many of us, as mentioned, were placed within Protestant families, many of us also were exposed quite a bit to Muslims and Islam in different ways in Senegal. I was fortunate enough, or what I found to be most characteristic for me was walking along with friends that many boys on the street would call us over, would be very excited simply because we're white or we're from the US or many other things, but they were very, very curious about us. And on entering conversations, they would often pass around little pamphlets or explanations of, oh, this was what this prophet had done. This was like how my father got to know this sect of Islam. This is how my mother got interested in the religion. I think most interesting was a, a prophet they said was taken out to sea for going against the state many centuries ago. He was taken out and thrown out and began to pray on the water and prayed there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Some people I had talked to had said that he's still praying there now in the middle of the ocean. Others had said that he had drowned a few hundred years ago still praying. Um, but it was amazing to me how many different interpretations there were of the stories of the prophets or the stories of faith and what it meant to people, but also very much how concrete it was into this is the way we need to live, this is the way the prophet has shown us a good life. So um, I had the privilege of living with two Muslim families, um, which was just a um, great time to, for discussion and just to observe um, another culture, another religion. Um, and I think the two things that really stuck out to me was their devotion and dedication to their, um, to their faith and to their religion. They truly did live it in their everyday life. Um, for my first six weeks, I lived actually right across from a mosque, and so I heard the call to prayer um, numerous times of the day and saw um, and heard young men outside practicing um, this call to prayer. Um, I saw the stream of men going in on Friday afternoons um, dressed in their finest um, to worship or to, um, to go in and pray together. Um, and then also on uh, the six weeks on service, I lived with um, a family. And um, I'll never forget the image of my, we call them the grands because it was these three um, old ladies who were just magnificent. Um, they would always wear, you know, the traditional wear. Um, probably all 85 plus, um, but every time in the afternoons um, or early evenings, I guess, that the call to prayer would go, they would line up on their mats and um, they would get down and they would kneel and they would stand up um, repetitively as they do. And um, that just really stood out to me as far as, as like, would I do that if I were in their position? Um, just that dedication that they had to um, to doing that every day, no matter if it was uncomfortable or if it was an inconvenience. Um, that's just, it was part of life. It was what they, um, what they did, and it, it was just how they were, how they lived their faith. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'll never forget different things. My little, my little brothers, um, two-year-old brothers, climbing up on them when they're trying to pray, and just the patience that they showed as he would mimic them. Um, my 15-year-old sister leaving the television to go and pray um, on her own in her room. Um, yeah, the streets clearing on Friday afternoons so that everyone could go to the mosque. So yeah, it really was just part of everyday life, like Jeff mentioned, and um, yeah, just amazing dedication. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Molly Kellogg. And I'm Erin Floyd. And we're going to talk a little bit about family and gender roles in Senegal. Family is very important. Um, they support and care very deeply for each other. Family is also a pretty flexible term in Senegal. 
Family is not only who you are related to, but close friends as well. I felt I was definitely part of the family um, with my host family in Tiez. They treated me like a sister and a daughter. I would visit their relatives and friends with them, play cards, watch movies, talk late into the night, and my favorite was dancing in our living room together. They would constantly be teaching me new Wolof words and Senegalese dances, which is such a significant part of Senegalese culture. Another thing that is so important about Senegalese families is that they are so thankful for everything. Uh, when I gave them my gifts at the end of my time, um, my mother said to me, thank you so much, I can't believe you got all of this for us, which was such a surprise to me because she had given me so much already. They were so willing to give me gifts that were theirs. I got so much jewelry from my sisters. Lastly, I just want to say that I really consider them part of my family, and I know that that's mutual. I remember when we were almost heading home, and we were all back in Dakar together. Yasin, our Senegalese coordinator and wonderful, powerful woman, got a call from my host mother, Hadija Sumare, and she told Yasin as she was crying, my daughter is leaving the country. I love that family so much and couldn't have had a better experience with them. Okay, and I'm going to share a, a story with you. Um, for those of you who have already completed SST or another study abroad program, you know how bizarre the flight home is. For those of you who are yet to go abroad, heads up, it's super trippy. <laughs> On the flight from Dakar to D.C., I found myself feeling nervous and bombarded by the technology, the English speaking, the in-flight magazines, all of it. I recognized similar feelings in a young African woman sitting across the aisle from me. She ruffled through her things and clutched her baby to her breast constantly throughout the flight. While she appeared to be comforting him by rocking him and kissing him on the head, she equally appeared to be comforting herself. As the flight ended and we approached the U.S., a flight attendant passed out custom forms, all of which, all of which were written solely in English. The young woman's anxiety heightened as she stared blankly at the essential paperwork before her. After a few minutes, she turned to me and asked me in French if I could help her. I did my best to explain each form, but as usual, I found my French vocabulary to be lacking. Her baby grew impatient and began to scream loudly and steadily. We asked the flight attendant for help, but she assured us that she was too busy. So as the plane landed, we did our best to complete the forms in the midst of baby screams and suspicious stares of impatient Americans passing through the aisles. We were the last ones off the plane as we attempted to navigate the airport. She told me that she and her son were moving to the U.S. to live for five or six years. They were joining her husband, who was in the process of completing his degree somewhere in Tennessee. She had recently decided to seize the last-minute opportunity to move to the U.S., leaving behind her parents, her siblings, and her friends. To top it all off, she clearly spoke little to no English. Immediately, I predicted what her reception would be like in the U.S., while as an American, I was generally welcomed with open arms by the Senegalese people I met, despite my linguistic ignorance, I imagined that it would be quite a different story for her. When we parted ways, I wished her good luck and truly meant it, for at the time I wondered how she could possibly find happiness while living in the U.S. While our country holds amazing political, educational, and economic opportunities for women, I believe that we have lost the values of family, solidarity, and community that are so vital to the many Senegalese women, women I had the pleasure to meet. I still often think of the woman on the plane. I wonder where she is, how she is, and so on. However, I no longer worry about her because of the incredible strength I witnessed in the women of Senegal. They have this amazing ability to adapt, 
survive, and even thrive in the face of adversity and oppression. And I expect no less from this particular young woman. We just spoke in Wolof in French, saying hello, how are you doing, how's it going? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm Alicia Landis. And I'm Katie Jinke. And meal times make up a large portion of our family time. And the biggest meal of the day is always lunch. And every day for three months, I had chebu jen, which is rice and fish, for lunch. And lunch is usually eaten at 2 or 3, um, and dinner at 9 or 10 at night. And the manner in which the Senegalese eat really reflects their hospitality, or taranga, in Wolof. Everyone in the family gathers around a big bowl on the floor, and you eat in your own little section, either with your hands or a spoon. And then one person, usually the oldest woman there, would take whatever meat there is and break it in her hands and toss it to your little spot so you can have some meat. And um, while... All the while, you're, you're being told to mange, mange, il faut bien manger, which means eat, eat, it's necessary to eat well. And after you've finished eating, they'll probably say, tu as mange rien, which means you have eaten nothing. And my family would all, always tell me that I want you to be fat when you go home to America so everybody knows that it's good here. And um, in my first family, random people who lived near would always just randomly conveniently stop by when it just so happened to be lunchtime and then would just get up and leave really without saying anything after they finished eating. But anybody who who wanted to can just come in your house and and they would always be welcomed during um, a meal time. And it was really wonderful seeing the conglomeration of people who would gather around my house during the lunch hour. And during my service time, they would usually give any leftovers to the Talibi, who are children who leave their family to go to Quranic school. And sharing was also a huge thing. Even if someone was just eating a hard-boiled egg or something to snack on, I would always be asked if I wanted part of it. And this is very different from what we do here. If we have something to eat, usually try and eat it before anybody sees that you have it so they don't, you don't even have to be asked if you can share. So that's one thing that um, I took away, that now, if I have anything, I usually try and offer it to people who are around me. All right. Well, again, I'm Katie Jen Kay, and I'm going to segue a little bit into, um, <laughs> into um, a story that kind of touches on chores and also everyday life, and just getting by in a culture where um, there was definitely a language barrier. Um, so about three weeks into our study portion, we went on a, a weekend trip to San Luis, and we were taking a historic carriage ride, and it was so fun. And we were looking around at um, different monuments, and um, at one point, we had to get out of the carriages and walk past other carriages. And most people went around the carriages, but I, I remember looking, and there, there was like a small gap between a horse and another carriage. And um, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to cut on through there. I'm sure I'll make it. The horse probably won't bite me. It'll be fine. <laughs> well, um, sure enough, I am just about to make it past, and the horse lunges for my shoulder. So I 
dodge that bullet, but the horse clamped down on my breast. So, so anyway, it was really painful, really, really painful. Um, fast forward like three days, I'm back home, and um, it's dinner time, and I uh, tell my mom, my host mom, um, I need to do laundry sometime in the future. Uh, we finish dinner. I wake up the next morning. As is my habit, I let my mom know that I'm going to go bathe. And weirdly, she says, well, okay, today when you're bathing, do everything your host sister does. Do everything she's doing. She's out in the street. Um, just take everything out there and do what she's doing. Okay. I'm really confused and really uncomfortable, never bathed in public. <laughs> so, but you know, I, it's, I've only been there like three weeks, like I said, so I go along with it. I wrap myself in my towel, I get my toiletries, I head on outside. Uh, I see my host sister is topless, so I put my towel down around my waist. And as I'm getting closer to her, she looks up looks horrified, I look down, see that she's doing laundry, not bathing herself. <laughs> and right as all this is happening, my host mom runs, runs at me <laughs> with a cloth in her hand saying like, what are you doing? Why are you topless in the street? You're a two-bob, you're a white person, you can't be naked in the street. Um, <laughs> So then I'm just really embarrassed and it's awful. Later that night, we're having dinner and I really want to explain why my left breast is purple and blue. <laughs> but all I can think to say in French is le cheval goûte ici, which means the horse tasted me here. <laughs> so. Anyway, it was, it was a really, um, that was an embarrassing time, but <laughs> it really, honest and truly, was um, just really a blessing to be around um, a family, in, in both of my families, that was willing to put up with that kind of craziness on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> and um, they just showed me so much um, respect and patience every day, so I'll never forget it. Alhamdulillah. Um, I'm Adrienne Yoder, and while we had a lot of really great and fun and um, sometimes bizarre experiences, um, there were things that we experienced every day, common themes that were also very challenging and very difficult for us to process. And one of those systems that we saw every day was the Tally Bay system. Um, when we first arrived at Senegal, um, I remember the first couple of days we were walking around Chies, the first city we were staying in. Um, we kept noticing how these little boys, like from ages three to ten, kept running up to people and begging for money, and they all basically looked the same. They had um, no shoes, they had really ratty clothes, and they all had bowls to collect money in. And at first we weren't really sure who they were, and then we kept like questioning, like, who are these kids? Like, are they homeless? Are they orphans? Where are their parents? Um, and about after the first week or so, we actually, we learned who these kids were and we learned that they were the Tally Bay and they were students of the local Quranic schools. And um, well, 
um, in the beginning, Quranic schools were first offered to people who um, couldn't afford to send their kids to a public school, and so they'd send them to a Quranic school to learn the Quran and um, learn to memorize and recite the Quran in Arabic. And um, so it was a lot of family sending in kids from rural villages, so these kids come in with like not very much. And the marabou, the um, religious leader who's in charge of the school, is supposed to provide for them. Well, a lot of times that doesn't happen. Um, so a lot of, they don't get a lot of necessities like clothing, they don't get showers, they don't get meals every day often. And um, so over the years, the neighborhoods that um, the chronic schools are in have noticed how you know, these kids need help and these kids need at least some parental guidance or something. And so um, over the years, families have given them food um, for meals or oftentimes they just give them money to go buy meals. Well, the marabou have seen this and have kind of, not all of the marabou, but a lot of them have seen this and kind of taken advantage of that. And now um, they have the Taliban go out all day and beg for money for them to collect at the end of the day. And they have to collect a certain amount of money by the end of the day or they'll be punished. Um, and so it's turned into kind of an abusive and a really exploitive system. And um, it was really hard for us to see that. But it was also really encouraging. During my second six weeks, I was working with a church. It was really encouraging to see that there were a lot of people working against the system and fighting against the abuses that had been made in this system. And um, some of the things that I saw, whereas at my church, they, they would bring in um, the kids monthly to come get a shower, get their clothes washed, um, get health checks, which was really important. Um, also, to have a decent meal and to play some games because Believe it or not, these kids really didn't know how to play games because they never did. Um, and also, some things we also saw were there were a lot of churches, a lot of organizations, a lot of different mosques that were providing Taliban centers where these kids could come in and get all of the things that they needed, but also learn some artisanal skills so that they could later provide for families and for themselves, but also learn some skills in like English and um, math. And so, um, while I saw a lot of progress being made. It was, I'm, I kept thinking like, man, I hope in two years, like the next SST unit can see even more progress being made. And when at first I had thought these kids were like complete like brats and like really mean, like I went after working with them, I realized that these are really, really good kids that have just been put in really bad situations. And so, yeah, I hope that the next time um, Senegal SST rolls around, they'll, they'll see even more progress being made in that system. Wale Jem, um, which as I said earlier, peace be with you, or how's the morning, um, in Pular, which is the language that Noah Weaverdick and I had the opportunity to learn a little bit of um, on our, in the service portion of our SST. We were in a very small village about 800 kilometers southeast of Chess, which is the city we were in for, or for study, um, about an eight hour, well, I guess all told about a 10 hour car ride. Um, in a station wagon with a driver that we didn't know and couldn't speak to. But um, yeah, so we were in this little village of about 800 people. Um, and if you think, um, like I wouldn't encourage this normally, but if you think as stereotypically Africa as you can, whatever comes to your head, you're probably envisioning our village because, uh, you know, mud huts, animals everywhere. Um, the water came from the well in the middle of the village. We had a boutique, which is a little shop where they sold flashlights and sugar and um, 
little chocolate candies, and that was about it. Um, we had rice and peanut sauce every day. Um, so yeah, it was very, very small, rural village, no electricity, um, and our NGO contact was one of the few people in a large area that had a generator. Um, and so I'm gonna read a story that Noah wrote for me. He unfortunately couldn't be here this morning. Um, just some reflections that he had on this experience with our generator. One thing that really surprised me about Senegal was the ubiquity of television. It was always on, and the soap operas were as mind-numbing in French as they are in English. This contributed to the thrill I felt when I learned that Josh and my service assignment would be in a village that, we were told, was about as rural as you can get in Senegal, mud huts and all. As it turned out, TV would find us even there, but in a more limited and extraordinary fashion. Our NGO work contact had one of the only generators, and every evening he would faithfully start it and hang some bunny ears from the branches of a tree so that we could watch the World Cup. The generator was audible throughout the village, and within a minute, the children would arrive at a run. Within 10 minutes, there would be 40 of us, and by the second half, we would have over 100 people all crammed around an 11-inch TV set with eyes glued. The brilliant lightning storms in that region that not infrequently pulled me away in rapture had no effect whatsoever on the villagers unless accompanied by rain. At that point, the challenge was how to fit all those people into a shelter the size of a Miller dorm room. While I could care less about the World Cup itself, those experiences meant so much to me. Even in a tiny village in Senegal, people found a way to come together and watch Africa host one of the biggest events on Earth, to compete on a level playing field with a world that has thrived for centuries on its exploitation. Watching soccer will never be as good without my village around me, but it will also be so much better without that Akon song. <laughs> That was a Wolof greeting we received at the orphanage we worked at. Um, first, the service part. This was what was unique about with the service or this orphanage was that it was Christian, and because um, Senegal is predominantly Muslim, a lot of the kids there had like a really bad past to go along with it. Um, the first night we were there at the orphanage. We had just realized like how like what we had gotten ourselves into just because all the kids there was about 70 kids there age, like the ages were from I think the youngest was one and the oldest was like the early 20s and the first night we were there all of them just started having like a dance off in front of the pastor's house which was where we stayed at and it lasted for lasted for a while but luckily they didn't make us dance that night um, as time passed, we just saw how much love these kids had and how much they gave off. As much as they gave to us, we also gave on off to them. We also saw how much faith they had, and we noticed by their daily conversations and just how much, you know, they would go to church, and the boys and the girls would each have, like, separate devotional times where they would just praise God, and it was, it was something that was natural for them in their daily lives. Um, Olivia, Aaron, that was something that really struck out to Olivia, Aaron, and I. And something else that, um, that really amazed me was about this, uh, this testimonial that I received from one of the girls which Olivia and I shared rooms with. And her story was really shocking in particular because this Christian orphanage, her, 
her uncle lived, or her uncle was the pastor. And so she went to live there because, she had told her father she went to live there because of school purposes, because it was going to be closer to school and she wanted to attend school and so on. But the actual reason was because she wanted to be a Christian and her family was Muslim. And when I asked her, like, so does your father know? Like, what does he say now? Like, has he, what has he said to you? And one thing, a quote that she said was, uh, I know my father will explode and probably disown me as his daughter, but it's okay because I only have one father, and that's God. Um, this is Myra, by the way. I don't know if she mentioned. I'm Olivia Aaron. <laughs> and um, for me, some of the most remarkable memories I had at this orphanage was playing soccer with the kids. Soccer is huge in Africa, football. And for these kids, um, the passion that they showed in soccer was more than a million times more than I've seen any professional soccer player demonstrate on TV or in the World Cup. And, you know, to these kids, it didn't matter what the conditions were. Uh, we played on sand fields, and it didn't matter how many pieces of glass were in the fields, how many pipes were sticking out. Um, it didn't matter how many rocks cut up their feet. These kids went out every single night, and they played um, faithfully, and they loved it. And it didn't matter how many times they got hurt. The next day, they'd be out there again playing. And... Um, the last day that we were there, we had befriended a lot of the kids, gotten really close, and one of them, a guy, his name was Yusu, and he was our age, and we were all sitting silently eating breakfast because there were no words, um, and he, with tears in his eyes, opened up and shared his dream for the kids to have a soccer school there. And he told us that many years ago, he had a friend who was very close to him who had the same exact dream, but died in a car accident. And with that, it, it faded the dream, and Yusu um, felt very discouraged after that, but he never gave that idea up. And for the kids, um, they had so much potential in soccer, and all he wanted to see was them be able to get shoes or shin guards or be able to put their talents um, to being in a school and mixing that with education. And as we left, uh, he gave me his jersey that he always used to wear. And he asked that when we're back here, when I wear it, or when we're thinking about the kids daily, that we would just create awareness about this idea and dream, and one day that it would come true. So that stuck with me, and it will forever. Well, on top of working at the orphanage, we also worked at a poultry farm that was adjunct to the uh, orphanage and supplied a lot of the financial uh, backing for the orphanage. Uh, which is a complete different story in itself. But most of the time, the uh, job would be physically demanding. Um, there were countless days where I'd have to haul over my arm a 50-kilogram um, sack of feed for the chicken and just walk about a half a mile or so in the sand just to get back to feed the chickens for the week. Um, and so typically after a day, you'd be really tired, and I really wouldn't want to do anything after I got back to the orphanage and showered. Um, but that wasn't the case. Uh, most of the time I went outside and I had to sit, I sat down for a little bit and immediately I'd be mugged by 30 or 40 little kids um, just saying, um, uh, loot with us, loot with us. And for those of you who don't know what loot is, it's, it's one of the national sports of Senegal, which is essentially similar to Greco-Roman style wrestling. Um, so here you have this white guy who's sitting on a porch surrounded by uh, 30 kids or so, um, and most of, them, most of them are saying, well, this guy's a white guy, big white guy, he can't, he can't not loot. So most of the time, I would go out in the sand after I just took my shower and loot with them. Um, 
And it was incredible because um, even the smallest little kid who was probably 85 pounds actually gave me a run for my money. Um, and it was very hard to get them um, <laughs> just to let me go towards the end because they would just keep, keep me on the ground and say, oh, I got the two bob down. Um, which for, and two bob is white, is, means white person in uh, Wolof. Um, and just having that, just kind of interacting with the kids like that was one of the most amazing things that's uh, happened to me, even though I didn't really even know the kids. So. Mbaldo. That's uh, good morning in Sorare, which is what Lindsay and I spoke on service. I'm Rosanna Kaufman. This morning we've told you some stories and tried our best to explain how we experienced Senegal, but there's still so much we didn't get to talk about. If any of you want to know more, please feel free to ask us because we're more than happy to talk to you about our experiences. Now we're going to end with a quick slideshow and a very special video clip of the Goana, which is a really popular Senegalese dance that each one of us was roped into doing at some point during SST. And after that, you're dismissed. Mangidem. <laughs> Yeah.